the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking forward to 2023 with three members of the Irish Times business team, Laura Slattery, Umbert Kennedy and Kira O'Brien. You'll hear them give me their predictions for the media industry, the economy and the tech sector. I began by asking Umbert Kennedy if there was likely to be any let up in the housing crisis. No, it's, it's somewhat depressing and we always seem to be talking about property in the negative we have a kind of annual inflation rate uh, for October running at just under 10%. Now, that's down from around 15% in April. So we have cost of living pressures and higher interest rates probably bringing the headline inflation rate down, but still very high. Uh, then we have um, rents running, uh, rent price inflation, asking price inflation at about 14%, which is a record level. A recent report from Daft said there were just... Uh, over a thousand homes available to rent nationally as of the first of November, and just uh, three hundred and forty-five in Dublin. So pretty depressing sort of metrics coming um, out of the property market now. On the upside, uh, we do have a tick up in supply and a much bigger level of supply than we've had for the last ten years. So uh, the state is expected to build around twenty-eight thousand homes this year. And that's going to exceed the government's target of around 24,000 this year. And there's going to be a feed through into next year as well. So we might get near 29,000 next year. Now, remember, the government's Housing for All strategy has at its base uh, a pledge to deliver 300,000 homes over the next 10 years. So that's roughly 33,000 a year. Now, you don't just arrive at 33,000, you have to build up to it. So uh, supply does seem to be going forward. Now, the only big cloud on that horizon is we have input price inflation in the construction sector running at uh, very high rates, and that's uh, posing a question over the viability of certain projects, and it's therefore posing a question over the viability of the government's Housing for All strategy. So that clouds the outlook again. So, yeah, it's um, you know we seem to be always in, in a situation of having unaffordable prices with supply inching up but never quite reaching the levels that we need. Yeah, it's good for Sinn Féin, though. Uh, it helps them in the polls. Do they have a solution? Their solution is more public sector housing, which the government are uh, in the process of doing, but Sinn Féin's promises are for a much bigger you know, public sector housing build-out. Um by the way, we seem to be relying heavily on the private sector, as we always have, and the government even now still relies on the private sector for its social housing build. So we seem doubly tied into you know, the whims of the private sector, and at the moment there's a big cloud, as I said earlier, over that in terms of input price inflation. And then the higher interest rates um, may um, choke off a lot of the investment here. So it's just it's very uncertain at the moment. Um, the upside is is that we we are building um, again. It's it slowed down to almost a stop in the aftermath of the crisis. And the OECD did a report recently, and it gives a great uh, line on it just to give you uh, some context of how and why our housing crisis is so um, nasty. Um, it basically said Ireland's housing crisis can be traced back to a decade of underinvestment after the two thousand and eight financial crisis. And it said, while the population grew by 263,000 uh, between 2009 and 2017, the housing stock grew by just 35,000 units. 
So that puts it into perspective just uh, the supply pressures that are still gripping the market. Pretty stark, all right. Um, Kira Bryan, let's get let's talk about uh, tech for the coming year. Uh, twenty twenty two was a, a really busy year for tech. I suppose the first half of the year was uh, uh, more of what we'd seen uh, in recent times in terms of uh, growth and hiring by the companies. Um, but the second half of the year was a, a completely different story. Twitter was taken over, and we've seen um, a lot of job losses uh, across the sector, including in Ireland. Over eleven thousand jobs have gone in the ICT sector. So, what's what's the outlook for twenty twenty three? It's a bit uncertain at the moment. Um, look, it could go either way. Look, but at the moment, the tech sector is suffering from the same thing that every other sector has been hit by. You know, there's a cost of living crisis. There's been, you know, we, we had a COVID-19 pandemic, which the tech sector did really well out of because obviously everybody shifted to digital. So there was this kind of this bump that where, you know, everybody was trying to digitalize their business. Everybody was at home doing Zoom phone calls and drinks, which I'm, I'm sure most people are glad to see the back of. Um, and, you know, the, the tech sector flourished on this. And there was kind of, the, I suppose, the, the presumption that maybe this kind of growth would uh, would continue or at least, you know, that they would be able to sustain the, the, the current levels of business. That hasn't happened. And as a result, we've seen massive rollbacks. Now, obviously, there are one or two things that are, are slightly, slight outliers on that. Twitter, you know, they, they halved their, their staff and then they lost a, a, a few more based on Elon Musk's takeover. Um, that wasn't kind of the, the natural order of things. And I wouldn't put that in the same category as, say, Facebook rolling back. Um, on its staff. I mean, they have 85,000 staff uh, before they began the cuts. They said they were going to cut 11,000 worldwide. Now, it's in Ireland, obviously, that's, you know, not quite, you know, it hasn't equated to as many as we originally feared. I think it's in around 350 jobs that are going to go in Ireland. Uh, They employ about 3,000 people full-time and then about 6,000 more on contract. So, you know, they they are still a major employer here. But, you know, from Twitter's point of view, um, it was a very different scenario. It wasn't just that they were being battered by the global macroeconomic conditions. They also had Elon Musk who came in, basically said he was going to clean house. He came in and he fired you know, the executive team. He told people that unless they were going to be hardcore and work hours around the clock, um, that, you know, they could they could either sign up for that or consider that their resignation and they'd get three months severance. Then we've seen how that's ended. I mean, even in the Irish courts, obviously, uh, Twitter's head of the Irish business, Shade McSweeney, took that to court because, you know, she didn't resign. She just didn't respond to an email that was basically, most people, if, if you got it from your boss, you know, you'd be talking to a union. And um, part of the problem is, I suppose, that a lot of tech sector workers aren't unionised. So I think, you know, we're going to probably see more retrenchment on that. I mean, Amazon are cutting jobs. Now, that hasn't affected Ireland too badly because it's mostly on the devices and retail side of things. But that's going to continue into next year as they they kind of identify what jobs need to go and where. Um, it's A lot of people seem to think that Facebook will have more job cuts. They've been plowing a lot of money into the metaverse. It hasn't quite taken off yet. I mean, look, we're not going to say the metaverse is never going to take off. The, the, those kind of predictions, you know, that's what lands you in trouble, you know, on the off chance that it actually does. But Facebook's problem, I think, with the metaverse is, is that people thought it was going to be one thing and then they got something else altogether. Um, you know, some of the criticisms of it were the fact that, like, it looked too cartoonish, um, that the avatars didn't have legs, which was deeply unsettling. And it's actually more unsettling than you think when you actually see it. You're like, you know, this floating torso. And people just don't see 
the need for it at the moment. Now, obviously, Mark Zuckerberg thinks that this is the future of the internet. This is how we're all going to be interacting with each other in years to come. We're going to have this immersive internet. And there are Irish companies who are working on that too, but from a more business-focused side of things, you know, or putting it into education. You know, universities are signing up for this where you'd be able to do like virtual lectures. And, you know, there is a, a, a case to be made that there is a use for the metaverse, but that Facebook's implementation of it hasn't quite hit the mark. And as a result, because they've gone all in on this now, they have to, to, to do some pulling back and that's going to involve a bit of pain um, on the cost front and on the, the, the staffing front. Um, also, smaller Irish players uh, have been hit. You know, we saw Wayflyer announce a, a, a number of job losses and they were considered, you know, they were going to be one of the big kind of success stories of the year. They were, they were actually targeting growth towards the end of the year and now they've had to pull back on that as well. It's just, you know, it's just a bit of a bloodbath at the moment. But, you know, these things, they're cyclical. We've seen this before. Um, you know, if you've been around the tech sector long enough, remember the dot-com bubble bursting, there's been pullbacks and, you know, we were probably well overdue for one. And, and because there was this massive, um, massive kind of upswing post-COVID, you know, it was inevitable that there was going to be some sort of correction and the tech sector was never going to escape it. Yeah, sure. Uh, Laura Slattery, it was a busy year in media. And um, before we look forward to 2023, maybe um, let's look back a little bit. What was the biggest story in media for you in 22? Well, it's interesting, actually, because there's a huge kind of dichotomy between what was happening in Ireland and what was happening globally. Just a quick shout out, I suppose, for the completion and passing into law of the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill. Now, we haven't really seen the impact of that yet, but it is a sweeping uh, piece of legislation that will possibly bring a lot of change to the Irish media landscape in the future. At the same time, we had quite a lot of inaction on uh, the public uh, funding side and we're yet to see whether the government will really proceed um, with any kind of meaningful reform to the television licence fee, for example. Um, really, the year, though, I think was dominated by uh, what was happening essentially in California um, to the kind of stocks that um, live in the same ballpark as some of the tech companies that Kira uh, was mentioning. Um, so that's the, the, the big streamers um, from the likes of Netflix to companies with a longer uh, heritage in the media like uh, Disney. And what we've seen there amongst the biggest media stocks in the world is that some 500 billion has been wiped from their share price this year. Uh, Netflix is down 52%, Disney down 45%. Um, Spotify, <laughs> which is uh, never really... Uh, been overly acquainted, shall we say, with a profit is is down sixty nine percent, and then there was a, a sort of a big mega merger earlier in the year between Warner, Warner Media, which at the time was owned by Telecoms Group in the US called AT and T, and Discovery Communications. So they formed a company called Warner Brothers Discovery, and since their shares. Um, started trading in the spring, um, they've dropped 63%. So all of these companies are trying to do land grabs for um, streaming subscribers, um, and particularly on the video side. And what they found this year was those subscribers have been much harder to come by. And Netflix, Netflix's subscribers actually um, had a bit of a blip earlier in the year, which was really notable because, you know, so far the story of Netflix had been one of immense growth but what they're finding is that um, inflation and, and the cost of living, um, it has increased um, customer churn 
And although we don't really have complete metrics on that, I think it's evident by the extent even to it, even when they started growing again, it's much slower than it was before. And I think there's question marks about, um, you know, whether or not all of these companies can continue to compete in this area. Uh, inflation also had another big impact on the media sector this year, of course, um, including closer to home um, with uh, in, the, in the news uh, paper sector. Um, the cost of energy, of course, was affecting all companies. But on top of that, uh, newspapers found that the cost of paper was absolutely rocketing. The cost of, uh, of newsprint, as we call it, went up from about 390 a tonne, that's about 18 months ago, to, to 960 a tonne. So those cost pressures are just huge when you're talking about an industry that is um, in decline rather than one like, for example, Netflix yeah. and Disney, which is perhaps, you know, just ha as Kira was saying, having a bit of a correction. Mind you, um, we did get uh, zero rated VAT in the budget. So that's on, yeah. the, on the flip side, yeah. that's a help. And that will be spread, you know, spread around publishers in Ireland of newspapers. And the full year cost of that is, is 39 million. So, yeah, that was seen as more of a stay of execution rather than a full, you know, something to really re rejoice about. It was actually interesting on the same day as that was announced in the budget, uh, Mederhuis uh, closed a local paper called Fingal Independent, saying, you know, that the, the change in VAT had come too late for it. So it will be interesting, as I said, with these newsprint cost pressures and a lot of other pressures as well, the same ones on subscribers, the same ones in re relating to churn. Um, will force a few decisions um, on, on the parts of, of media companies that find they are, you know, can't justify continue printing con uh, given the high level of cost involved. And I suppose uh, given we're talking about Netflix, we have to talk about Harry and Meghan. I don't know whether you watched it or not, but everybody seemed to be talking about it or maybe it was just the British media. Has that been a success for Netflix? Yes, it has been. I mean, it's been Netflix's uh, most successful uh, documentary. Now, they did pay an awful lot for it, 100 million they paid reportedly. And a lot of that, you know, would obviously have gone, gone to Harry and Meghan themselves. Um, there were six parts. They released them in two batches of three. I think it was a very successful, almost like kind of auto-generating PR strategy. Um, I, the, the, a lot of the, the press coverage in, in Britain, I think, seem to be a misunderstanding, uh, I think, uh, you know, what this uh, documentary was all about. Uh, the documentary was aimed, in my, in my view, at Americans, at the American audience. And um, I think there was a sense amongst the British press that they, they couldn't really get their, their heads around that. And of course, they, you know, tore <laughs> the participants to pieces, not, not just Harry and Meghan, but also some of the um, contributors of colour who made uh, very salient points um, about the concept of monarchy and kind of stuck, snuck in a kind of a, a stealthy critique of, of things like the, the Commonwealth. And it was actually quite, you know, on one level, it was sort of, you could say that it was a soap opera and you could say that it was a, sort of a sad tale of family estrangement and that it's not really, you know, serious news. But on the other hand, I think it points to... Um, uh, it, it pointed to a lot of huge issues to do with um, racism, empire, and, and it had a, this kind of um, this kind of stealthy um, underlying uh, gravitas to it. Um, which, uh, if you watched all, all all six episodes, which many people did, um, it, it was was really quite really quite rewarding, I would say. So, so you know, whether it was a loss leader for Netflix or not, uh, you know, it probably was. It probably was. You know, it's very hard to kind of itemize those things, but. 
Um, and whether I, 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 I think it's all, it's all good. It's all good for Netflix, things like this. It might not be, say, for example, on the level of Stranger Things or, you know, they've they just had a, a hit recently with a show called Wednesday. But I think it, it, it taps into another market for them. It gets them great um, mentions in the media. And it's sort of, as I said, it almost it almost uh, marketed itself. Yeah. So what should we expect from the streamers in 23, Laura? Well, I wonder, there's kind of conflicting views on this, but I think it's inevitable at some point that there's going to be a pullback in, in spending. I mean, Netflix was amongst the companies that had job losses this year. Um, now, it's still, you know, spending quite a lot on, I would say, uh, non-sport. They've, they've no live sport. And if they were to get into that game, they would have they would have to uh, massively increase what they spend in order in order to compete there. So whether the timing is right for that or not, or whether they simply just won't have any choice about it, or whether they have to actually um, merge with another company in order to go down that route, I, I don't know. Um, but Disney, um, Disney, um, they changed their CEO there at the end of the year. They went back to their former CEO, Bob Eager. And one of the concerns there was that they had perhaps been a little bit too gung-ho on the spending side in order to make Disney Plus take off the way it did. Disney is involved in live sports through ESPN in America. Um, but they were planning to spend $33 billion this year in, in 2022. And they ended up spending a bit less than that. They, they sort of pulled back over the course of the year to $30 billion. And it's uh, that suggests that they will pull back again next year, um, as they sort of adjust to the new the new environment. Um, and in the meantime, the company I mentioned earlier, Warner Brothers Discovery, are, are still kind of getting their 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 situation in in, in order. They um, they here we do, we don't really have access to them because a lot of their programming is distributed through Sky and some other platforms as well. But eventually they will want to make a global play ab- around a single streamer. So at the moment you've got Discovery Plus and you've got HBO Max in different markets and they want to combine that into a single streamer, which will apparently be called Max. But <laughs> whether or not you know, they'll have the financial firepower after doing such a huge deal to follow through on all of that, um, that remains to be seen. Mm. So, so that's one of the big uh, question marks. At EY... Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Kira, this could be a defining year for Twitter. Does Elon Musk have the the wit uh, to uh, make a success of this takeover? I I don't know if anybody can make a success of Twitter as a platform, but whether or not he makes a success of this takeover, I suppose, will depend on what's left standing by the time he actually puts a new CEO in. Because I mean, we've seen massive change at Twitter in the last couple of months, and I think. It kind of set the tone. Um, I mean, obviously, early on in the year, he started buying up sta- a stake in Twitter. He built a, a kind of a fairly sizable stake before he actually put in an offer and said he'd buy the whole company. Now, when he said he'd buy the whole company, he put in a price of $44 billion. That that was, you know, obviously far in excess of what people thought Twitter was worth. Um, and there was wide speculation at the time that he would try and, and get out of it, uh, which obviously, as we know, he did. There was 
an ongoing kind of legal action chiefly supposed to be around the amount of spam and bots that were on Twitter. Um, he claimed that the company had tried to hide it. I think anybody who's seen anything about Twitter knows that that spam and bots are, are you know are an ongoing issue, and I don't think that there was a, the extent of the problem was in any way you know invisible to anybody who had done their due diligence on the company. But you know the only person who the only people who won out of that particular period of this whole takeover were lawyers, um, and since then. Obviously, it's been a very unsettling time for people who work at Twitter. Um, he came in, as I said already, he, he came in and, and cut half the staff. He fired a lot of the executives. He put and changed work practices considerably because you know people have been told at Twitter, you can work from home forever. Um, he basically rolled back on that and said, look, you know, new management, new rules. Um, and now you have to come into the office if you can physically make it in or, you know, consider yourself gone. As he has done at Tesla, you know, he he made the same similar um, announcement for for people who work at Tesla that remote working was not an option. Um, since then, you know, there's been there's been a, a lot of of toing and froing. And to be honest, if you're trying to keep track of what's been going on at Twitter in the last couple of months, and it seems bizarre that it's only been a couple of months because there's been so much going on, you it, it's it's like you get whiplash from it. It is just. The most like that there is there's there's decisions made and then retracted. Uh, the most recent one being the the fact that you know you could no longer link out to other social media platforms. So if you had an Instagram or a Mastodon username in your profile or you tweeted about your username, you know that that tweet would be deleted um, and your account would be suspended until it was. If you had an account that was is set up solely to promote rival platform, like as there are on on Twitter, you know Facebook has an account there then that, those accounts would be deleted. Um, that policy was quickly rode back on because it was absolutely pilloried. I mean, it was just, it just seemed the most bizarre thing because you know, Musk went in as a free speech absolutist. He was going to transform Twitter. He was going to get rid of the spam, get rid of the bots, and he was going to transform Twitter into this free speech, this bastion of free speech. That is easier said than done because obviously Twitter crosses a lot of geographical areas. Each have their own... Um, their own rules on what constitutes free speech and whether free speech is even allowed. So, you know, it, it was always going to be a difficult thing for him to do. Um, since then, I mean, there's a general feeling that I suppose for people who've been on Twitter a long time, you know, I've been on Twitter since, God, I think 2008, 2009. Um, and for a lot of people who have been on Twitter, it, it just doesn't feel like the same place anymore. You know, it's very unsettling to have the rules changed constantly. So, you know, for him to make a success of the takeover, um, I think he needs to row back on the constant change for change's sake, because that seems to be what's happening at the moment. And there are so many people out there who are praising him for the changes that he's making and then praising him for rowing back on those changes. It's it is like it's 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 the weirdest thing to sit and watch. And it's also massively entertaining to sit and watch because it's it's brand damage in real time as well because obviously this hasn't stayed with Twitter. It has affected Tesla as well and there are shareholders in Tesla who have called for him to basically, you know, to, to, to make a decision. You know, you have to eat concentrate on Tesla, concentrate on Twitter. But you can't do both. And we've seen this before because prior to, um, to, to Elon Musk taking over, you know, Jack Dorsey had been CEO. You know, obviously he stepped down you know, a few months before of all this kicked off. But, you know, he had been CEO and co-CEO of, um, he'd been CEO at the same time of Square. So, you know, you can't, I don't think it's possible to actually to do both and, you know, to, to kind of accompany the size and the, I suppose, the reach of Twitter 
and do a, a company the size and the reach of Tesla. And also, not to forget, he has SpaceX as well and, and several other you know, yeah. kind of uh, irons in the fire. Um, he has to make a decision. He has to put somebody in who can do a good job. Now, he obviously ran a poll, and as is his tendency to do. Um, obviously, you know, Twitter polls are not making the decisions for him, no matter what anybody thinks. I mean, he already had said previously that, you know, he would stay as CEO of Twitter for a few months. And I think that's fine, you know, stay there for a few months. But the decisions, I suppose, that are being made at the moment, people don't see the logic of a lot of them. You know, in the meantime, we have this sideshow of the Twitter files, which is all the internal communications of Twitter being released, sometimes without context and sometimes just being made a mountain out of a molehill in some cases, you know, like particularly the early ones where, you know, they were talking about um, not amplifying content. You know, people were talking about shadow banning, but like it's kind of fairly similar to the the own pol- the policies of Musk where he said, you know, free speech is not freedom of reach. So, you know, that, that just because you can say something on Twitter doesn't mean it can be boosted out to, you know, everybody on the platform. So like, there, there's a lot of kind of contradictions going on. He's obviously not a free speech absolutist because if he was, he wouldn't have banned journalists who criticised him um, under the pretext of you know, this this Elon Jet account. It's just, I don't know if anybody can make a success of this particular Twitter takeover because, you know, he'd already overpaid for it at the start. He didn't really want to buy it. Let's face it, he was, it was, there was a court case that was going to force him to buy it one way or the other. Uh, and it's now affecting, as I said, it's now affecting the share price in Tesla. So I like it is time to kind of yeah. for him to make a decision. Is he going to do Twitter full time? Is he going to do Tesla full time? I don't think that you can do both. Kira, in terms of technology, actual hardware, is is there anything on the horizon that we should be looking out for? Any new phones or gadgets uh, coming from the big companies? Well, most of the new stuff will be announced um, CES in a couple of weeks' time. Um, I mean, look, we're we're looking at. Obviously, there'll be the usual round later in the year uh, of iPads, iPhones, smartphones. I mean, a lot of people are still kind of eyeing up the the, the metaverse. um, And, you know, obviously Facebook is still going big on that. But I mean, it's very hard to kind of see I suppose the new, uh, the new and innovative stuff that's that's going to come out because you know a lot of it is, and it's the same every year. You know, it, it's it's iterations rather than innovation. Um, and you know, we kind of got to a point, particularly with smartphones and tablets and things like that, where a lot of the hardware side of things has been done, and now we're looking at software and kind of refining things. Like even if you look at the last few iPads, you know, they're great, but you know, it's these small changes that that make a big difference like you know moving a camera from the side of uh, when you have an iPad in in uh, landscape mode versus portrait portrait mode moving the position of a camera you know things like that are what are getting praise at the moment and software is what's getting praise I mean obviously we're going to be looking a lot at AI in the the, the coming year um, I mean last year we saw uh, an, an engineer at Google claim that uh, they're Basically, their, their AI had become sentient. Um, in the last couple of weeks, people have been trying out the the, the OpenAI chat GPT um, artificial intelligence. And, you know, obviously there's been some interesting results from that. But, you know, I think we're a long way off um, AI making all of our decisions for us. So but it'll be interesting to see where it goes now in the next 12 months. Laura Slattery, coming back to you. Uh, it's going to be an interesting year for RTE. Um, the license fee issue still hasn't been resolved. It's got a new chair, and uh, I think uh, I'm right in saying that D Forbes' time at RTE is also coming towards an end. 
That's right. Yes, D Forbes's term expires in the summer of 2023. So realistically, that means the new chair of Orti will have to begin the process to find her replacement in the early new year. And yes, it's a difficult time to be um, in charge of a public service broadcaster, I think. And, and actually, in fairness, it's a difficult time to be in charge of, of any broadcaster because whilst um, you know, television advertising, particularly in Ireland, um, did well in 2022, um, there is that long-term um, pattern of decline in linear viewing. And whilst um, streamers uh, such as the RTE player and uh, Virgin Media player are doing well and are really seeing huge increases um, in the number of uh, streamers um, and, and uh, clicks, um, they, they don't generate the revenue that would, is necessary to replace the advertising revenue that will eventually be, start to be lost again from linear viewing. So it's not, not too dissimilar from, from the predicament uh, facing, um, fa- facing newspapers, but it's, it's there that digital transition in terms of revenue hasn't happened yet. So that, and that, some of that you know, very much informs the backdrop to what we see in the narrative around government funding of RTE um, th- as I said, this year, nothing really happened again. <laughs> um, the Future of Media Commission came out with its recommendations, one of which was for direct exchequer funding um, of RTE, which is slightly controversial and perhaps not necessarily the magic bullet. Um, but in any case, it was rejected by the government. And what they did was they set up a, another technical working group to examine the issue. Initially, that was supposed to report in November, but uh, Michal Martin indicated um last month that that you know it wasn't they weren't ready yet so there's another year has has passed uh, without without much progress on, on that front and over the course of last summer um the former chair of of RTE Moya Doherty you know wrote a couple of uh, you know wrote some stinging uh, words in a letter to Michael Martin about the um about the predicament and essentially said that in her view the government was deliberately undermining um RTE and you know, of course, I don't know. I don't know for sure if that's what they're doing. But I think that was actually a very reasonable accusation to make, based on the facts over a number of years. Um, inflation obviously affects RTE too, but um, you know they're never going to get a compensatory um, increase in the license fee. Like politically, that's just never going to happen. So their income on the public side is declining in real terms as well. Um, so, yeah, another huge year for RTE next year, changes at the top, um, other personnel changes as well, actually. And um, you know, they recently just appointed a um, new um, managing director of news and current affairs, for example, and Deirdre McCarthy. Um, you know, I think they had a good pandemic in lots of ways. Uh, not that we're still talking about the pandemic, but, um, you know, I, th- I think people gathered around RTE a lot and, but since then, uh, as I said, linear viewing is in, de- in decline. Actually, I have the um, figures here. Yeah, in the first half of 2022, uh, viewing on, on Irish television was down 8.1% year on year. And I think really the really critical bit of that is amongst 15 to 34s. Now, this is across the market. Uh, amongst that age group, it was down almost 18%. So you can see that there's a huge tail off. And in fact, the, 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 the you know younger people are just so much less likely to watch television so that's a kind of a bit of a time bomb in the background um, for all broadcasters, I think. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that in 2023.
Umber Kennedy, what should we expect from the Irish economy in 23? Yeah, it's all a bit of a sobering crash down to earth from uh, Harry and Meghan and, and the Travelta at, at the centre of Twitter. But I suppose um, at the moment, the headline forecasts, um, if they turn out to be right, are just forecasting a significant slowdown in the pace of growth, so not a recession. You know, so that's a dampening of spending. The ERSI recently talked about modified domestic demand, which is the indicator we now uh, go to to look at the kind of underlying activity in our economy falling from a growth rate of around 9% this year to 2.2% next year. And the OECD in its report, they talked about um, modified domestic demand growing by 0.9%. So that's kind of the slowest rate we're going to have for, we've had for quite a uh, time, you know. Companies also, their incentives to invest are going to be lessened. Confidence is lower. But there's upsides. Uh, employment is, is going to stay strong, um, according to both uh, forecasts. Government finances are uh, supported uh, hugely by corporation taxes. Uh, consumers have built up savings during lockdown, which will support a little bit of consumer spending, but at a lower level. So we're being uh, held away from a recession. Um, but I suppose, you know, these are headline indicators. They're average figures. They'll be cold comfort to a lot of households who will really begin to feel the pinch, especially after Christmas when the bigger energy bills are going to come in. So while nominal wages are growing by about 4%, inflation's running about 8 or 9%. So that's a kind of 4 to 5% squeeze on real incomes on average. So that brings us back to the cold days of austerity post-financial crisis. And of course, they're average figures, so the financial circumstances of houses differ, but a lot of houses will, a lot of households, I should say, uh, will feel a much greater pinch than that. So at the moment, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a slowdown in growth, but the outlook is so clouded with uncertainty surrounding the war in the Ukraine and the impact uh, it has on energy prices and whether that will feed into a wider recession in the Eurozone. And remember, Ireland such is a, you know, heavily predicated on its trading relationships with other countries. So that could have a negative impact here. And, you know, we started 2022 with one set of circumstances that were thrown out pretty quickly. So I'm low to get into saying that all these forecasts are going to, you know, play out. Uh, it's just a very uncertain time. I mean, people are talking about the fact that we may live in a kind of era of the of the poly crisis, I think is a buzzword at the moment, where we're just uh, constantly facing new crises, overlapping interweaving crises that just keep coming and hitting us. And it's very difficult to see you know, where we're, where we're going uh, from year to year. Uh, the ECB, for example, is busy raising interest rates um, that are going to put a lot of, uh, you know, people to the pin of their collar when trying to pay mortgages. Um, they were slow into the inflation game. They still were trumpeting the transitory story of inflation up until the beginning of this year. Um, and they've been caught on the hop. They're now predicting that inflation is going to stay above their 2% target rate for three years. I mean, that would have been unthinkable to say for them like less than a year ago. Um, so it's all very uncertain at the moment. But the Irish economy internationally and vis-a-vis -vis its peers is in a relatively strong position. And that's not to say that households are going to suffer and going to feel, um, you know, that they're, they're going through a bit of a recessionary period. But in terms of headline metrics, we're going to avoid a recession. OK, let's close it out uh, with a couple of uh, key predictions for 2023. Start with you, Laura. 
Well, this time last year, Kieran, I predicted that uh, Netflix and Spotify might merge to form a company called Netflixify or Spotflix. And whilst that hasn't happened yet, um, I remain hopeful <laughs> that at some point the law of the broken clock might apply and um, <laughs> it will come true. Um, I, I don't know if I have any really um, serious predictions uh, to make. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward uh, to seeing um, the, the glut of content continue whilst it still does from streamers and broadcasters. I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty to keep me entertained. Umber Kennedy. Well, I think at 2023, we'll probably see the first slide in corporation taxes, which has been holding up the government's finances for several years. Now, that's not to say that we're going to have a, a big contraction or anything. It's just that they've been growing at such an elevated rate for the last few years. I think we might see a kind of levelling off or a plateauing of that, and the Department of Finance are predicting as much. Um, then, you know, on house prices, uh, the entire real estate industry are predicting we'll have a kind of soft landing. Now, that's an ugly phrase that we can remember from back in the crash time, but they think the metrics, the demographics... Uh, even down to wages, are kind of backing up a kind of growth scenario, albeit at a lower rate for the next period. I just wonder, you know, if that will play out. Uh, interest rates seem to be turning the markets in a lot of countries. We're having, you're seeing a reversal in prices um, in the UK, in Canada, in New Zealand on the basis of higher interest rates. So it'll be just interesting to see if the industry's soft landing narrative plays out or if interest rates and higher interest rates are more corrosive on um, the market than they're currently um, predicting. All right, we'll leave you there. Umber Kennedy, Laura Slattery and Kira O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Okay, that's it for this week and indeed this year from Inside Business. My thanks to Laura Slattery, Umber Kennedy and Kira O'Brien. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Happy New Year.